Welcome to this week's Property Matters, the show that brings global industry trends to an Irish audience. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or by email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host today is Carol Tallon and myself, Brian Fox. Okay, Brian, you're very welcome back. Thank you. After, <laughs> after a long holiday. Um, Indeed. Okay, break, yeah. the main story today, obviously, Budget 2020. Um, Pascal Donoghue was right, there were no surprises, but again, that doesn't mean it wasn't disappointing. Um, okay, so I suppose the big the big issues that are going to affect the planning property and construction industries are stamp duty on commercial property purchases increases from 6% to 75 mm-hmm. The help to buy scheme, as expected, has been retained. The Construction Industry Federation has said that uh, while it's helpful, it doesn't on its own address the affordability issues or rising construction costs. And that's something that we need to be mindful of. Um, also, there's a new scheme to install communal charge points for electric vehicles at apartment blocks. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. And I think maybe one of the most um, interesting but yet unclear pieces is that uh, in relation to the Irish Real Estate Funds and Irish Real Estate Investment Trusts, the REITs, and um, what's happening here is that the minister has said that this type of investment, you know, he obviously doesn't use the, the kind of language that we see predominantly in the media cuckoo funds or anything uh, anything like that but this type of me- um, investment he recognises as being very welcome at this time this is the rental the real uh, estate the real estate, the real estate funds and the real estate investment trusts um, so he does recognise that they're welcome and that they're necessary at this particular time and that they are important however he also points out that it's time that they pay an appropriate level of tr- of tax and he doesn't go on to say what that appropriate level will be. And what do you think? Have they not been paying an appropriate level to date yourself? Depends on which side of the table you're on, Brian. Um, but I would say that this is quite, quite vague language. Um, mm. So he's introducing a number of new anti-avoidance measures to take mm. effect um, f- uh, via financial resolution this evening. So these measures are to include new limitations on interest expenses, to prevent over-leveraging, uh, a measure to combat the artificial avoidance of gains on redemption of the IREF, mm-hmm. and also a number of targeted amendments to the Real Estate Investment Trust regime from today. Mm-hmm. So again, pretty, pretty unclear. So it will be interesting to see now the lobby group for investment for the institutional investors. I'm interested to see what they'll come out with about that. Um, so again, look, no real surprises. We've yet to see we've yet to see what the impact of this will be. Mm-hmm. So again, Could I just talk to you just for one moment about the, the help to buy scheme because I'm a little bit... To date, he says some 15,000 new homes have been purchased or built by first-time buyers under the help to buy scheme in order to provide certainty to those who are hoping to buy their first home soon and to those who are planning and, and building those homes. I'm extending an incentive in its current form for a further period of two years to the end of 2021. Now, there's a lot of arguments about this in, in terms of... Um, <clears throat> It being somewhat unfair because this scheme is designed, I think, isn't it, for people that uh, aren't earning great money and uh, are finding it difficult to, difficult to raise a deposit. Am I wrong there? Well, I would actually take the opposite view. I would say that in order to benefit from the maximum amount that you can benefit, you have to be earning good money because this works as a um, as a repayment of 
tax paid over the previous four years. So in fact, it actually, for lower income earners or for people who've been working outside of Ireland and returning to Ireland, they're actually disadvantaged by this. So um, one of the points that has been made is that actually this benefits people perhaps potential buyers who need at least. And there was speculation right up until yesterday evening that, um, you know, we knew the scheme was likely to be retained. There's been huge lobbying and appropriately so. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was definitely speculation that the limits, the thresholds would be reduced. Now, if they were reduced to 250,000, 300,000, that would essentially rule out most of the new homes being in built, uh, being delivered mm-hmm. in Dublin. Mm-hmm. And... You know, that's that's obviously not good. But there is an argument um, that I've come across which is sort of suggesting that it's unfair to uh, buyers because it does benefit the, the, the uh, certain type of buyer and um, the government is subsidising that that type of buyer. How well, they're, to, they're re- yeah, absolutely. It benefits, it benefits potential home buyers who have been working in Ireland and those who've been working at higher income jobs are obviously going to benefit the most to the maximum amount of relief. Um, And I I think one of the main criticisms that's levied against the Hub to Buy scheme is that um, for people who see it as as an incentive for first-time buyers, first of all, they're incorrect. This was never designed to be an incentive for first-time buyers. If you see it as that, then obviously you you might not see, you might not understand how it works because it gives everybody the same advantage. Every all all buyers who have been living and working in Dublin or in Ireland over the past four years, they give them the same advantage. It's really important to understand that the Help to Buy scheme is a supply side initiative. It's for the construction industry and appropriately so. In fact, more should be done for the construction industry. Um, but the difficulty here is a political one. It's not politically popular to come out and say we actually need to incentivise the construction industry. We need to stimulate uh, and support the provision of home building. But that's actually what happened. So the government correctly identified that a number of years ago. They just weren't politically brave enough to say it. So in fact, if this was correctly identified as a supply side initiative, then I feel it would come under much less criticism. I see. And what about stamp duty change? Um, just briefly before we go on with the programme, what's your, what's your attitude? They decided to increase the rate of stamp duty applicable to non-residential property by 1.5% with effect from tonight. Yeah, look, to be honest, I think that that's probably a step too far, given that in recent years it was increased from 2 to 6%. So I think that jump is too much too quickly. So I I think that this year is too quickly to to increase it by a further 1.5% when only in recent years it was increased from 2 to 6%. So to sum up budget 2020 from a construction point of view, what are your thoughts? Not particularly helpful. Oh, really? Yeah. But look, you know what? Actually, maybe we've more expert voice here about it because here in studio with us today, we have Ralph Montague, architect and director of ArcDocs, board member of CETA and current chair of the NSAI Technical Mirror Committee for BIM and part-time lecturer in Trinity. Have I left anything out, Ralph? (laughs) That sounds about right. Well, you're very welcome. Um, Ralph, what's your take? Um, Because obviously you're you're deeply, you're working deeply across a number of projects um, with the construction, uh, across the construction industry. What's your take on this? On the budget? Mm. Um, Well, I suppose as you outlined there, it's pretty unimpressive. um, And... You know, I think the, the construction industry does need more support and uh, it's not Getting said, it. it's not politically correct to, uh, to, d- to do that. To, okay. to do that. But, um, yeah, I, th- I mean, I think um, construction is really important to 
to the economy, to the sector. And I'm really a fan of what you guys are doing on the show in, Thank you. in, Thank uh, you. <laughs> in raising sort of public discourse around uh, construction and property matters. Because obviously, I think a lot of people feel disconnected from the construction and property sector as individuals. And, and um, it's important to everybody. You know, it's, it's where we live, it's where we work, it's where our kids go to school. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it means everything to society. So, Why do you think know. people are so disconnected? Because obviously we're an industry show. We talk about the planning, construction and property industry because I actually, what you're saying about the construction industry, I really feel like that about the planning. Um, the planning sector that people... Planning is a public function, yet people are so far removed from it. And I think with construction, you know, particularly if, you know, when people are seeing cranes in the city centre, I don't think they understand how that translates into daily life if they're living in three bed semis in the suburbs or, you know, there's, mm. they're living in their homes and they're not currently affected by the rental crisis or they don't need to buy a home or their children are still in primary school. So it's not a concern. They're not thinking of student accommodation. So wh- why, what is the disconnect? Uh, I think um, maybe if people feel a little bit helpless in, in you know, what can they do about it. and uh, But it does affect everybody, even if they don't think it affects them. I mean, it's, we have a crisis everywhere. We have a housing crisis. We have an education crisis. We have a healthcare crisis. Uh, and that's one of the challenges of the construction industry at the moment is a, a productivity issue. We, we can't actually produce uh, enough um, infrastructure to support society and that's not an Irish problem actually that's, yeah. a, that's a global problem that, uh, who's have, to blame Ralph for that? I don't think anyone's to blame I think uh, what's um, I mean there's some demographic changes globally the, there's an increase in population there's an ageing population uh, and um, I think the construction industry has been a little bit slow if you look at other sectors in modernizing the way it works. And so, therefore, if you looked at productivity across construction for the last 40 years, there's actually been almost zero increase in productivity. Whereas if you look at productivity increases in other sectors like manufacturing, manufacturing whatever, and, yeah. you, you know, you have a two, three times um, productivity uh, is increase. That, is that our attitude then to, to, to construction in the country? Or what, what, um, what is it that's not the, stimulating it or <laughs> encouraging it? There's, I suppose there's a few things. The way the construction industry is structured is it's quite fragmented. So, um, you know, there's a, it's, there's a lot of small and micro companies that make up the construction sector and the way um, procurement and contracts are structured. You know, there's, there's a very deep... Um, Sort of hierarchy of of companies, uh, so it's very difficult to organise. But that. is there is there a policy issue here? Because I know looking at the UK, um, you know there there was was it back in. Uh, 2015 or 2016 that infamous report um, by Mark Farmer of Cast Consultancy mm. Modernise or Die and it was such a stark call out that it got the government's attention it got the industry's attention it got uh, the funders' attention mm. you know have we not had a stark enough call out for the Irish sector? Well, we've had a uh, stark uh, reality to our construction sector, and it, that's sort of manifested itself in in the housing crisis and the, the education crisis. So, um, but I think the political will to to do something about it has probably been slightly mm-hmm. different in Ireland. Um, mm-hmm. you know, if okay. you look at the UK government, it came right from the cabinet office down to um, 
to implement um, a strategy to to change the way the sector works over there and to to take a much more sort of productive approach, a manufacturing approach. Now, everybody says oh, construction isn't manufacturing, but we can... Why, why we, isn't it? Well, <laughs> I suppose because... Um, Every project is different and bespoke, and but the, but it's not entirely true because when you look when you dig down into buildings, the elements that make up buildings are mm. quite standardised. You know, so, well, absolutely. Yeah, if you yeah. look at the at the um, offsite construction at the moment, you know certainly what we see is that actually it should be more if you know it should be more aligned to manufacturing, particularly with a focus on quality and consistency. Then actually maybe this bespoke approach that we're taking is entirely the wrong one and it is holding us back. You know, um, yeah. Well, it's a lot of legacy, I suppose, the way the construction industry has been structured over many years and, and the way people approach projects. But if you that, have to do it... That's from a corporate point of view or...? or? I, th- I think that's at a sector point of view. Sector. A inter- um, when you, if you just did a comparison of, say, manufacturing, just as an example, mm-hmm. like if, when you're building a, a car or an aeroplane or whatever, the way they go about it is they would they would sort of design it and construct it within software first and they would make sure all the the various parts are going to fit together and then they'd procure those parts and they'd get the you'd, you'd get to a factory floor and they would assemble it exactly the way they've designed it and what you'd end up with is you know the the physical product but you'd also have this digital version of the product with all the information about it now in, in construction, that's completely different. So the way we approach construction is we produce um, a set of documentation, sort of two-dimensional drawings and, and various other documents that describe not exactly what we want to build, but more or less what we want to build. Then we go out to procure um, sort of packages of work based on risk of what's not in the <laughs> documentation. And the only time they begin to really work out the constructability of it is when people are on site. And that's actually the most expensive expensive place to to work things out is and the most dangerous place actually yeah. is to to try and figure out what how we're going to build this building on site but that's the way the construction industry works and and as a result is okay we 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 do eventually end up with buildings. We do. The con- you can't say that the construction industry doesn't work. We do end up with buildings, but it's it's a very expensive so way. Of, put the cart before the horse, in other words. Well, it's an expensive way of working, and um, and 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 the people who have the construction experience are engaged very late in the process, so they're not bringing that sort of experience to the to the overall process. So just give us an example. What sort of phase? What 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 would other countries do? Uh, would, would you would go on site first and then documentation after? Or? No, no. Um, I think other countries work pretty much the same. Yeah. So it's, this, this, this is not an Irish problem. It's a, right. it's a global problem that uh, uh, it's very paper based. So mm-hmm. it's very documentation based. So the way you describe a building uh, through architects and engineers is through sets of two dimensional drawings that, to be honest, not not many people understand how to read, yeah. and. Uh, you know, and it's and because it's paper-based information, it's very slow to process and and very slow to update if if changes and occur. I, I absolutely, and I presume yeah. potential confusion over absolutely over of, yeah. updates, yeah. and then obviously you can have overlap. 
or clashes and that's one of the big problems yeah. on, on site for traditional build. So the, and there's t- terrible statistics. I mean, 70% of construction projects end up over time or oh, over budget okay. yeah. or, or both. <laughs> yeah. you know, so that, so it's, that's quite a f- higher failure rate. and um, That costs money. Yeah, and then the, and you because you're changing on site, you're wasting a lot of material, a lot of labor. So the waste factor in construction is said to be over 30%. Some organizations would say it's almost 40, 50% of the cost of construction is wasted effort, wasted material. Yeah, that's uh, outrageous given the tiny is. margins at the moment. Absolutely. So, yeah. But from what you're saying, then, are we looking at a procurement problem? Um, it's Procurement is definitely one of the problems because the way we procure, as I said earlier, we sort of procure these sort of packages of risk uh, without really a fully, a fully worked out what are we going to do. And, and we're only working it out when we're on site and we're engaging with the construction professionals at a very yeah. late Quite stage. And, and that sort of approach to procurement is, is uh, very old-fashioned. Is there yeah. a difference between the public and private sector for that? Uh, not uh, particularly. I think um, I think the the government contracts in Ireland uh, sort of uh, try to mitigate risk by pushing the the, the, the risk onto contractors. But mm-hmm. that's backfired in a way that if the, the 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 quality of the information you're producing during the design stage is still not fully worked out, then that opens up opportunities for for contractors to rightfully like you can't blame them to claim for variations and uh, extensions of time where they have to work out things at a later stage. Uh, and so you've, you've seen it. Anybody who's been involved in the construction of buildings knows that it, it always goes wrong. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> there's no perfect project. So, the, so I think what we need to do in construction is step back and say, well, why don't we approach this like they do in manufacturing? And I think that's where technology and building information modeling uh, sort of offers opportunity because we we can we can construct a building now in software before we ever get to site. We can work it out fully, coordinate it, work out the price, work out the logistics of how we're going to put stuff together within software, which is a very cheap place to do that, uh-huh. a very safe place to do it because you're not hurting anyone, you're not killing anyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and then when, once you've done, like in manufacturing, once you've figured that out, you can go to site and execute what you've you've done and, and avoid all those cost overruns and uh, is BIM is BIM being used? Um, so, say in the UK, we know that um, BIM is mandatory in all PPP projects since 2017? 2016. Yeah. 2016. Yeah. Where are we? Where are we in Ireland? In Ireland, um, there is a government policy. So, in 2017, the the government contracts committee announced that uh, they would implement a strategy to mandate BIM over a three year period, starting in 2019 with complex projects and then medium projects and simple projects. So they have who, a who decides who decides if a project a public project is complex. The the procuring authority. So the the, the government contracts committee sort of engage, is um, involved with all the major procuring authorities like the TII, uh, HSE, the Department of Education. And uh, so, you know, they still have to go and procure the, the buildings and I suppose they, amongst themselves, are deciding. Um, is is the public is the public or private sector leading the charge here in terms of BIM adoption? I would say so. Yes, the you know a lot of the international clients. The sorry, public or private? Sorry, sorry, the private. Private. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the a lot of the international clients, the big FDI clients, uh, obviously advanced in this way of thinking, and they sort of demanding that of of their mm. delivery so it's, teams. It's but really customer led. It's it should be customer led. So. Um, be, because uh, it's the old golden rule, you know, he who has the gold makes the rules. <laughs> you know, and um, but unfortunately, and this is one of the biggest excuses that people are using for not implementing BIM is that they say our clients are not asking for it. And you know, I think it's a little bit of a cop out because you know, if if I go for professional advice to a doctor, I don't. Ex- he doesn't expect me to tell him how to do his job. Same with a lawyer or an accountant. You know, you, you you're expecting the professional advisors to give you the best advice as a client. And uh, you know, and uh, you know, I think a lot of professionals in in the industry are using the fact that clients are not. Asking for them as a as okay. a way not to stay with us because yeah. uh, we're going to we're going to take to this conversation the next part very interesting. Um, Ralph uh, Monarch of, uh, of Architects, much excuse me of, <laughs> of, of Architects, uh, stay with us because we're going to continue this conversation. Meanwhile, we take a break. And you're very welcome back to Property Matters here in Dublin South FM with Carol Tall and myself, Brian Fox. You can contact us on Twitter at iProperty Radio or at email at iPropertyRadio.com. Well, with the break, we're talking to Ralph Montague of Ardux. Um, so let's just move on, um, because what I want to ask you, Ralph, is uh, we, st- we talked there about construction and uh, the digital transition of, of structure sector. Tell us something about that. Would you? Yeah, well, as, uh, McKinsey did an interesting report about productivity in different sectors, and um, they, they measured construction was actually the second least digitized sector in in um, what's the least digitized sector <laughs> i think it was fishing or hunting <laughs> yeah, so uh, y- you know so um and when you look at other sectors digitization has brought about significant productivity improvements you know so th- so that's what's driving i suppose the digital transition and uh um why the reluctance uh, uh, from who? Uh, well, from 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 <laughs> from the construction industry that that are so slow to take it up. The, the second least. Yeah, well, I, and I think it comes back to what I said earlier. Like the the industry is very fragmented, and when when somebody says, "Well, we should do digital," they sort of push the requirement onto small SMEs down you know down at the the other end of the supply chain, oh, uh, you know, rather than trying to look at it in a structured manner. So uh, I think Enterprise Island put a group of industry leaders together uh, called the National BIM Council, and the the role of the council was to write a strategy document to inform government of how we should approach uh, the digital transition of construction in Ireland. And that was released in 2017. Um, now, unfortunately, not much has happened since then, but in in the public eye, but I suppose in the background, uh, the Department of Public Expenditure Reform have, have been discussing this and uh, trying to think of, work out how they would implement that. But I mean, it, what applies to the sector applies equally well to individual companies that if you want to transform the way you do business and sort of make big productivity uh, improvements and and therefore profitability and and all the good stuff that goes with that you need strong leadership you know you need mm-hmm. leaders in industry who uh, are saying are willing to say we we have to change the way we do things yes we can build is that there a, in some pockets, I wouldn't say it's generally there. Um, you know, I think some people have, have, have de- de- developed business models over the years which are yeah. predicated on the way we work and wasteful way is, we work. And is part of the problem though that we've just we you know we had a decade of pure chaotic 
crisis. And, and then even as we came out of that, the recovery was chaotic. Um, the margins just, they didn't seem to increase as activity increased. And now we're very clearly on a downward slope again. So it feels like maybe there's never the right time to bite the bullet with this. You know, there is a cost implication. There is an upskilling implication. Is that part of the problem that we just don't seem to have had the, a long enough period of stability that we could depend on? It's part of the problem, but it's it's more of a misunderstanding because um, the digital transition is is about improving productivity and not making things more expensive, but making them cheaper and making them easier. So, you know, yes, there's in, investment required into digital tools and upskilling, but that has to be offset about the gains you're going to make, uh, even as an individual business. So, are they afraid of the expense that are investing in software and hardware in relation to it? Well, in uh, in 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 relative terms, no, because the most expensive part of the construction industry is labor. Yeah. yeah so if you force the, our labor to use outdated practices or paper-based practices, yeah. um, that's costing money. And uh, if you can equip the, the labor with uh, digital tools that allows them to be more productive and produce more output, well, then that, that saves you money. So, But, but do you think having in, in individual construction companies are small individual uh, have they identified this as a problem and 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 are open to suggestions in relation to moving forward on this? I type think of if you if you sit down with people and talk to them about this issue, they, they they'd get it. Um, but you know, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding out there, and there's people going around saying that you know BIM is going to cost more and it's going to you know it's, it's going to uh, take more time, and, and that's absolutely not true. Like, do we do we have actually um, case studies here? Can we? Do we have things that we can look at and point to and say, okay, well, look, on this particular project, BIM achieved whether it was uh, a savings, whether it was a certainty of program, whether it was, you know, do we have something mm. we can point to and say, well, actually, Absolutely, this yeah. works, and here yeah. I can show you. So the you. construction IT alliance was uh, charged by. Um, Enterprise Island and the National BIM Council to to carry out a number of case studies and produce two reports. So they they produced a report to look at the global adoption of BIM uh, and where our island sat in that, and and then they looked at the Irish sort of sector's adoption of BIM and uh, produced two reports, which informed the work that the the National BIM Council was doing in terms of writing the strategy. So okay, that's all available. Um, yeah. Can I can I just backtrack there for a second yeah. and maybe ask where does Ireland sit uh, in terms of of global adoption? Um, well, we're not leaders. This <laughs> Let's just say that. Um, but we're not we're not complete laggards either. So I suppose we're, we're somewhere in between. Um, I think Ireland has the potential to be a leader because we're a small market yeah. uh, and, and we're very agile in, in terms of uh, most people know each other. And, you know, if we made a decision as a country that we're going to become you know, good at what we're doing uh, in terms of digital adoption, that could happen a lot quicker than, are say, we, the are UK. We seeing, are we seeing pockets of this in the industry? So, for example, like we've had um, we've had a special here on data centres and, you know, there's an industry that's using this very well. You know, same thing for logistics centres, um, mm. same thing for um, you know, whether it's for retail. So, there are definitely pockets Absolutely, that are of yeah. this sector that are doing this better. There's, there's some companies in Ireland that are doing this incredibly well and you know, and they are leaders. Yeah. 
Yeah, but that's, that doesn't represent the industry. So, you know, if you looked at the sector, about 95% of the sector are SMEs, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to be honest, a lot of them may have never heard of BIM. Uh, you know, and, and, and particularly when you get to the sectors where we're struggling, which is housing, um, how, you know, uh, primary schools, primary health care, um, you know, it's not the big companies that are focusing on that unless it's through a PPP package. But, uh, um, you know, so it's that sort of medium tier uh, Sec- part of the sector we need to get to, and uh, and I presume there's an element of actually getting to the next generation of our uh, design and build teams. So I, I know well, that that's actually Ireland is doing quite well in that regard. Could, so the, the education I, system, uh, in in terms of training, can I ask you, Ralph, just as a matter of interest, mm. um, if there's a major project going on, there's a lot of money going in, a lot of money going into, say, the Children's Hospital, just for example, it's a bad example to give to you, uh, that's going up at the moment. Um, would it not be incumbent on the government to insist on the all that are involved with the construction to, to have a look at what you're talking about? Well, and, 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 and they and have, have that. Oh, please, yeah, they have on that particular project that there's a BIM requirement to deliver that project through BIM. And why it's yeah. gone wrong? Um, well, in a way, you could say it, it, BIM has, has uh, worked because they found a lot of issues before they've even come out of the ground. <laughs> but should we have done um, yeah. that at an earlier stage? Is this where we need to look at procurement? Yeah. We, we, like, they should have completed the exercise at, bef- before they went to tender, before, before they, they signed a contract. Well, this is my point. Yeah. This um, is my point, in that Office of Public Work, uh, the government itself, should sort of say, look, guys, this is, this is in vogue now at the moment. This is very, very cost-efficient. Uh, this is the process we've got to go through in future. Yeah, and and I suppose the government, uh, through their sort of policy uh, that they announced in 2017, have s- sort of indicated that commitment. But, but, but it's more imposing it than, than indicating it. Yeah, is it not? Well, they they have to impose it through the various procurement authorities that uh, that operate under the government contracts committee, and um, you know, and and to be fair. There's an upskilling required at that level as well. So, yeah. you know, I think the whole industry needs to uh, raise its game in terms of understanding. You know, this is really bringing to mind uh, the cargo ship or the tanker out in the ocean. You know, it's the decision has been made. It's just taking a long time turning. Um, and that seems to be that seems to be kind of the frustration at the moment. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, government, they're aware of this. Mm. Policymakers are providing forward. It's just the impact on the ground just seems to be taking a long time to translate. Yeah. And this is where the misunderstanding is coming because when we talk to people and say, "Well, this is a no-brainer. Why aren't you working this way? It's 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 saving money. It's saving time. It's saving people's lives. You know, it's 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 helping the sort of environmental impact." Um, you know, and the number one excuse we get from most companies is our clients are not asking us to do this. Yeah. And, you know, and as I was saying earlier, I think that's a bit of a professional cop out. You, yeah. should, you, no. should, you should say, well, I'm the professional yeah. and uh, and I should be telling our clients this is the way we should be working. And uh, So then it's a case of establishing best practice or, you know, really having this exemplar in, within the yeah. sector that people can point to and and learn from, and I know mm. that that's something that you're trying to do with AEC Hive. Yeah. What so is what is AEC Hive? 
Okay, so we um, what we find in construction is there's very little research and innovation. Um, it's happening, but it's happening sort of at, in individual companies and on a project level. And the sort of outcomes and the learnings never sort of come out into uh, the industry. And whereas if you look at other sectors like healthcare or medical devices or you know, um, ICT, whatever, there's incredible amounts of innovation and research happening in Ireland. So Ireland's actually doing quite well as a knowledge economy in, in, in a lot of those sectors. So what we're trying to do with this event is uh, sort of engage people in the construction sector in sort of coming together because um, there's incredible p people in the industry with a lot of knowledge to, to engage them, to bring them together and begin to try things in a safe environment, to do some research, to do some innovation. Um, so it's, it's kind of a hackathon type event where um, you know, people will set up little groups uh, to find their own sort of challenge that they want to meet, um, prepare for the event and and come together on a weekend in November. Are these corporate teams or can individuals come along? Well, individuals can come along, but we want people to collaborate. So, it's you know, you wouldn't come along as an individual. You would try and find two or three individuals. But can you come along and actually find a team there? Well, so the traditional hackathon model would be that. But I suppose what we found with those um, models is that you don't get a lot done if you, you if you have to sort of gel with people on the day and get something done. <laughs> so what we encouraging people is to form groups beforehand and even prepare a little bit amongst themselves. So I think you're I think you're underestimating yeah. the honeymoon period, Ralph. <laughs> I, I found with teams that actually the first twenty four hours are probably the most polite and productive that you can get. But no, I I, yeah. I take your point. Yeah. So. But what in, what kind of projects do you want to see or what kind of problems do you want to see come up at that? Well, um, well, there's a lot of problems, I suppose, in the construction <laughs> sector. That, so it's a rich, and, it's and a rich fishing Yeah, and a lot of innovation. And, um, you, you know, if you look at the investment that's going into research and development, construction, again, is on, on the very bottom tier. So, um, so there's enough problems. So I think people will define their own problems I, within their sector. Like, talking about problems, just, just, I'm just curious on this one because um, when I was a lot younger, um, there was an attitude where um, Fianna Fáil, I'm getting political here, but it's, it's, a cultural, <laughs> it's a cultural thing as well, I think, were seen to be very, very uh, good to the construction industry. And uh, then Fianna Fáil sort of got this um, uh, reputation where if you voted them in, you know, they'd be, they'd be having uh, sites all over the place. So people got kind of cynical of Fianna Fáil because then there, you know, it, was, it was construction everywhere, construction and public service. Is that attitude there, do you think? It, I mean, I know you've been in the country now a good number of years. Decades, so, a number of decades. But, but from the point of view of someone that's been living here and has heard this attitude at a younger age, I don't hear it so much now. Is that part of the cultural stigma, perhaps? Is that the right word to make attach to the whole problem? Possibly. Um, I don't think construction as a sector is getting the support it needs. Um, From any political party? Yeah. I'll give you an example. That, um, there's, a, there's a research centre for advanced manufacturing in Limerick that gets 46 million euros a year, I heard the other day. There's, there's a research centre in Ireland for web content, but there's no research centre that deals with 
uh, innovation in construction. So, you know, and that's one of the recommendations we made in the, in the roadmap was that construction represents about 10% of our GDP. Uh, you know, we're spending 20 billion euros a year on construction. The government's spending at least 8 billion euros a year. So is this something and for Owen Murphy to look at? <laughs> no, I'm quite serious. Absolutely, yeah. And that, that was the recommendations that, um, you, you know, because it's so fragmented, to expect all the little SMEs around the country to come up with the, the answers and the innovation individually is is crazy. Like, well, so no, the the I, sector I really needs to come together. Yeah. I, I don't actually think it's crazy to expect them to come up with the answers because I actually think that that's generally where the answers do come from. I think what's crazy is that we're not harnessing that. We're not collecting it. But yeah. actually, I do think a lot of the answers come from there. We just don't know about it. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, Brian, as to your point on corruption by another name, I actually was having a discussion with a property developer only in the last two weeks and he's pointed out to me that actually there are many forms of corruption and a mismatch between state policy and how it's enforced is a form of corruption. And I thought that that was a very good point to make because we actually have we have a policy established and yet, you know, particularly kind of on the planning side and yet um, maybe not being not being implemented on the ground at local authority stage because of political interference. And that's a form of corruption. So mm. I, I okay. think it's really important that mm. yeah. we take, you know, if we're going to go down that road, that we take a very um, comprehensive well, view, mm, though, mm. and look and look at the full spectrum. Because I do think, you know, that old style of thinking is, you know, it has tarnished the industry. And I think it's particularly unhelpful at a time when trust is such an important it's such an important mm. piece of the jigsaw here. And it's not just um, the industry needs to trust government, not just to make the legislation, but to enforce it and to support the industry. And that's not happening well, I think yeah. at the moment. There's a mistrust between the consumer and the industry as well, I think. That works There's a bit of a connecting of the dots as yeah. to Yeah, well, I'm yeah. sure, absolutely. Yeah. 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 yeah, I think, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a huge disconnect uh, amongst the different... You mentioned yeah, planning when right, we started. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, th- so on the one hand, the government's saying we have a policy that we want to implement digital... Uh, uh, processes Mm -hmm. but then they have a planning system that the only way you can make a submission is through 10 printed copies of the of of the documents and and, and um, you've said this before Carol that you, you, the the public look at drawings and they're not trained to look at drawings, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. so there's an immediate distrust of what's being proposed. And right. uh, yeah, and and, and, it's, it, and it's it's a kind of a vicious yeah. circle going yeah. down around so, all the time, isn't it? Yeah, so there has to be a connecting of the dots yeah. Yeah. across yeah. the whole spectrum yeah. from yeah. planning to design and to this, construction this to the way we. This is where a centre of excellence would pull all of these things yeah. together, you know. And, yeah. But you know, actually, a huge amount of this comes back to being more thoughtful in terms of the whole user experience and user experience design, pulling that all in. And and by coincidence, our next guest uh, this evening is actually going to talk to us exactly about that. So, so Ralph, thank you so much for joining us and thank you thank so you. much for giving us um, your time and your insights into this because it's, it's something that as an industry we need to get to grips with. So that was Ralph Montague of ArcDocs. Thank you so much for being with us today. Stay tuned after the break. We'll be joined by Angela Shoiga to explain the fundamentals of UX design or really designing for optimum user experience for prop tech and why it's important. So stay tuned. You're very welcome back to Property Matters here in Dublin South FM with Carol Tan and myself, Brian Fox. So now in studio is Angela Shoiga uh, to explain the fundamentals of UX our user experience design. Angela, very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for coming in. So tell us, what exactly is user experience design? 
Well, basically, user experience sounds very jargony, but it's been around for a long time. So basically what it is, is it centres every interaction that a user has with the any service or any product. Um, so I actually, when I'm trying to explain it to people, I actually bring it back to kind of a building analogy because people tend to understand that. So you That's have, very good for us. Yeah, matters. there you yes, go. There you go. Um, so basically, when you're building a house, you obviously you have your architect and you have your construction team and then you might you either have a painter or an interior designer. Mm-hmm. So basically... A UX designer would be the architect of any application or system. So basically, in order to have a, a solid foundation and a solid mm. structure, you need to have good that UX goes design. goes on the paper. That goes on Go the paper, paper, goes into your planning meetings you were talking about, pre-planning and mm-hmm. making sure, making everything efficient and as high quality as possible before it goes further. Um, a UX designer does that for any system. Uh, and tries to get rid of any friction points or any pain points or any bugs before going to development. And as in construction, labour is most expensive and then development in developing an application is most expensive. So it's a type of software? It's not really. UX design really is based solely around your user and what's best for your user. So you're trying to make everything... It's not necessarily what they need, but it's not necessarily what they want, but it's more what they need. So you as a UX designer have to kind of um, take on kind of a few different hats. You're kind of a psychologist in some respects when you're doing your user testing and then you have to iterate through kind of different solutions depending on different what the problem is, who your user groups are. So it's kind of, I suppose, a bit of a holistic approach kind of to design. So it covers kind of the technical, but it also is very much focused on your user. Okay, and can you give us some examples of, you know, what would be considered great um, UX design? Um, I suppose the one that probably everybody knows is Spotify at this stage. And if they're if they don't know themselves, they're probably familiar with it. Um, since Spotify's come on the scene, they've really taken over from the likes of iTunes. Um, yeah. Well, why is that actually? I mean, to be honest, my daughter set it up on my phone. I'm showing my yeah. age now. She set it up That's on my great. phone it because she discovered I had the yes, same playlist. Yes, yeah. yes, it is. <laughs> that is that is down to their UX. Yeah. Um, okay. They have done, over the years, they have invested a lot into user research and they've also used a lot of data that they have in the background to... Um, I suppose to tailor it to their user, like personalization. Like well, let's, let's talk about Spotify now because it's an app on the phone, right? Yeah. And I, I have my various various genres of music that I like to listen to, right? Yeah. So I can pick and choose my genres. So mm-hmm. how does that apply then, from from the technical point of view? You know, uh, and then you can flip over if you don't like the particular track you're listening to. Yeah. Well, it's it it. it all really boils down to convenience and usability. Like I have switched to other, we'll just stick with the music analogy for now. Yeah, like I've switched not, yeah. to other music apps and they're not as intuitive. Like, Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Is intuitive the magic word there? It, it is in terms of Spotify. Yeah their, yeah, their information architecture in the background and their algorithms are really, they're so intelligent. Like they're so... Um, and they're in- introducing new features all of the time and they're making subtle changes that their actual their user doesn't realise they're making. Like other applications, like, again, it's not a property one, but Snapchat a couple of years ago made a h- huge change to their UX and their UI of their application and they lost 
thousands of users where Spotify has kind of implemented things and tested it with small user groups okay. and as it's been oh, successful yeah. then oh, it's, so, yeah, so, so if, if that's an example of good UX can you tell us an example of really poor UX um, yeah um, I would be a big fan of audiobooks and podcasts um, so one of the apps that I use is Audible um, which is powered by Amazon huge tech company um, and the user experience is so that you actually have to leave the application go to their mobile website if you want to buy audiobooks so it's not making it convenient for the user it's not intuitive yeah. uh, you're wasting a lot of time and as a result the bottom line is you're going to lose custom from that and that's what all this boils down to is that if your customers aren't happy or if your purchases are unhappy then they're not going to recommend your product to your friend or you know you might fail to retain them um, every every episode of Property Matters here you know we generally have a prop tech startup so somebody who's innovating for the planning construction and property industry um, usually bringing in new tools and technology so we have them in most weeks and you know there's always a focus on the problem that they're trying to solve um, but I never really hear a focus on how consumers might want to use this and also do you think there's a lot of assumptions being made so you know okay we're targeting a, we're identifying a problem and mm-hmm. startups are identifying yeah. a problem do you think they're they're understanding enough how the users want to see this problem solved as opposed to just okay we're solving this problem um in terms of the property industry i don't think so i think there are a lot of assumptions being made i don't think that you know, there are problems identified, but they're not identified in as specific as a way as you would need in terms of developing successful technology to solve that problem. Like, say, for instance, um, like examples of good prop tech would be like your heat miser technology, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um, there's a lot of other products out there at the moment for, say, you know, managing your tenants and that they can log on and that they can report if there's a leak or... But a lot of these platforms are not intuitive. They're not, um, mm. you know, they're not going back to the user to figure out... You're trying yeah. to bring this into the market now yourself, this type of intuitive type of... Yeah, well, that that would be the, the, the centre kind so, yeah, of UX yeah, design. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and, I, and I would see design. kind of, I suppose, property is, as Ralph said, is a slow adopter kind of to the digital transformation. Does that, make, does that make that industry very attractive to you as a UX designer because there's so much potential, you know, as yeah. opposed to... Yeah, yeah so and there's so many, you know, and there's, yeah, you know and there's so many, you know, fundam- fundamentally there's so many users, there's so many problems out there yeah. to solve. Yeah. Um, That's so interesting. You're the second guest... So to sit in that chair this evening you, and say there are so many problems. You then see these applications, you see the problems. How do you go about rectifying it, should we say? I mean, do you, do you talk to the to the, per, to the people yeah. that are involved with well, that it particular... Well, dep- again, it depends on, like, it's one thing identifying your problem, but you yeah. have to identify who that's a problem for. Exactly. So, like, say, if you take a residential purchaser, like, sure. there are, cup, there are, you know, you have your first-time buyers, you have your trader uppers, your trader downers. Each of those, you have to make your product then that it would be at a certain level that each of those would be able to step through whatever process that they want. Like say 
new developments that would have a mixture of first-time buyers and trader downers, for example. But if you're going to implement a tenant management system, it needs to be accessible to all of your tenants. You can't just do something that's that mirrors, say, a, like some of the popular apps like Facebook or Twitter. Yeah. You, you need to do something that minimizes the amount of kind of cognitive impact on your users. Okay, look, the reality is that actually PropTech in Ireland, um, and actually not just PropTech, um, property sir, uh, offerings, full stop, they're coming off a low base. So, um, yes, estate agents would always say that the the consumer, but really they mean their client, is at the centre of what they do. The reality is, you know, the platforms, the leading platforms, the sales portals we have at the moment, they're not great, mm-hmm. but there's no competition to them. So I see a lot, with a lot of the new technologies that are being offered, you know, because they're innovative in what they're doing, there's no competition or yeah. very little competition. Yeah. So are we in danger of... Um, almost accepting pretty poor UX in prop tech purely because yeah. it's new. Yeah, like I think really one of the, the fundamental things with UX and property is that a lot of time the new technology is used or the, like say for marketing, a lot of the kind of 360 tours and the virtuality, which is fine, but it's the thing with UX you don't have to necessarily adopt the most shiny thing for actually to be the best solution. Like the first solution is very seldom the best solution. Like, for example, like there's a lot of areas out there like that could be in property that could be improved for your very basic user. Like, and there's a lot of like every company now understands kind of data-driven decisions and there's a lot of data in property that's not been fed back into the pipeline to improve not only for your purchasers but also for your for the construction industry. For We're talking about kind of reducing environmental waste. We're talking about increasing, um, getting rid of our diesel and petrol engines in favour of electric cars. Like consumers want to have the same insights into how much is this going to cost me? How am I going to manage this? Um, if I get an electric car, how much is this going to add to my... For example, so that's another area of... Prop tech kind of yeah. like the area is is quite vast, but consumers across you know step outside of property. Uh, consumers full stop um, today, and I'm not talking about millennials. I, I mean consumers of all age groups now are just more demanding than they have been in the past, and yet for some reason we seem to excuse a lesser offering mm-hmm. from yeah. property. Yeah. Why is that? I mean, on a sales point of view, I know that one of the reasons we're given for that is because it's such an infrequent transaction. So people put up with three months delays of conveyancing for something that could be done like a bank transaction. Yeah. So are we, uh, you know, again, we're coming up a low base. I suppose because it's such an infrequent transaction, people do put up with a lot more and people you know for most people it's the biggest purchase mm. if they're buying a house, buying the house yeah. Yeah. it's the biggest purchase they're going to make in their life and they want to make sure that you know they understand structurally they want it to be okay and that the legal documentation so people sometimes don't mind that if if it takes a bit of extra time but it, they get it right then it's fine they don't necessarily they're not as demanding as they would be in every other area. Like I look at how the banking industry has transformed in recent years. And if you look at the likes of Revolut and how easy it is now to open an account with them as opposed to like opening with your traditional bank, you know, and, you know, property 
probably should be heading in the same direction as that and making things easier mm-hmm. for all of their consumers. Well, I suppose the positive takeaway from that is that, uh, you know, fintech is far more established, but yeah. PropTech, PropTech yeah. is coming after that. I think that this is something that we're going to return to again as we see PropTech becoming more evolved. Um, but for now, thank you so much. That was UX designer Angela Shoga. Thank you so much for joining us. I know we're going to re- revisit this topic again um, uh, as we progress, but that's it from us in studio today. Thank you so much for uh, being with us on Property Matters, the show where property matters. Get in touch with the show by emailing hello at iPropertyRadio.com or on Twitter at iPropertyRadio. We'd like to thank our guests for joining us here today. Also, thanks to Danny Hickey on sound. We're back at the same time next week from Brian Fox and myself, Carol Tallon. Have a great week. 